What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Trung Fan. Trung is one of the most prolific creators on the internet today. He previously wrote for 1.5 million daily readers at The Hustle, and he now writes a popular newsletter, hosts a podcast, and contributes as a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. We talk about Elon Musk's attempt to buy Twitter, how Red Bull is really just a marketing company, where the next NBA expansion team might end up, and more. I had so much fun recording this episode with Trung, and I hope you enjoy it also. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues. Yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro cover by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoras, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by 8sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. 8sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. 
You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I'm here with Trung Fan, who is, if you don't know him, the funniest guy on the internet. One of my favorite followers on Twitter who I have seen and known for a while now, but this is actually our first time talking and we've already been going for 10 or 15 minutes off camera and he's just as funny in person as he is online. So Trung, how are you, man? Joe, I got to say, I appreciate that intro, man. I do try to make people laugh. That's uh, my, my raison d'etre, as they would say, my reason for existence. Well, I mean, so for the listeners, I've followed Joe, obviously, uh, and the Pompiano brothers, but Joe is a master at a format that I also try to be involved, which is the Twitter thread. And I was watching Joe just go completely bonkers with these Twitter threads. I'm like, okay, I got to get involved here because this is a secret sauce and I'm going to try to play it. And, and uh, the standard's been set. The The reason I bring that up is the only reason I do Twitter threads because I know it's a lot for Twitter growth, growing audience. It's just so I can do more dumb memes and more people can see them. That's the reason. I love it. I'm looking at your bio right now on Twitter and it says smart threads, dumb memes, which is literally the basis for your account in my <laughs> belief, at least, which is you you do put out some incredibly intellectual and thought provoking things, but it's mixed perfectly with an amount of memes that is great. And I think people enjoy. <laughs> Let's start with with your background. I don't want to get too far into it because I don't think it's necessary to a degree, but you were at The Hustle before. What do you do now on a daily basis? Right. So the answer to the question is I've been basically doing the same thing for 15 years, which is I consume a lot of content every day, which is I'm guessing what you do. And I do some type of output of that content. Before the hustle, I spent 10 years in tech and finance. And that output meant emails to your team, maybe some corporate partners. But then I wrote for the hustle for two years, a business tech newsletter. And the output was to a much bigger audience, 1.5 million plus subscribers. And then now that I left in March, after two years at the hustle, I'm back to just consuming content all day, creating. I call it the Pump of Animal Playbook, the podcast. I have a podcast, a non-investment advice podcast with Jack Butcher, Bill Alzady. And then I write a newsletter just for fun once a week. It's just like what I'm seeing around the world. And sometimes I'll pick up a good topic. And then mostly Twitter, just sticking around. And I write a once a week column for Bloomberg, which is very much more serious than any other stuff. I was going to say, I'm not sure how Bloomberg convinced you to be serious, but they're very good and I love them <laughs> because again, they're thought provoking, but there's not any memes. And I don't know if that was like a prerequisite, like Trung, you can't put any memes in these articles, but they're very good and I enjoy them. Well, the, well, what I will say is the gold standard for business writing is obviously Matt Levine, who is a Bloomberg opinion writer and just a God, frankly, a God level writer. I think you have to earn the ability to have infinite word count and then be able to sneak in jokes like he does. So I'm not quite there yet, but that's my aspiration. Where did you learn to write? Is it just kind of how you've always been doing it or did you learn? Because your style is very unique. You are able to basically incorporate a bunch of stats and facts, which I think is very important, but it's in this kind of like humorous, fun way also. Yeah. Back to the the memeing and what gets me excited. It is the jokes, man. I just, I love jokes. Before we hopped on this call, I had like aspirations of being a screenwriter for Hollywood. When I was living in Vietnam after university, I was able to sell a comedy film script to Fox. As with anything involved in Hollywood, I'm sure a lot of listeners here, I've seen a lot of your past guests, they're very familiar with media. Getting your project option is like you're still in the 10-yard line of your own end zone. There's like 90 more yards to go and it rarely ever goes to completion. The story of that is for another time, but the, the positive thing is like that kind of attitude of writing for humor and then kind of mixing in all this other stuff, that's the base. So like 
I've always written in that kind of voice. I don't know exactly where it started, but I've definitely just kept it going. Can I make a film? Can anyone make a film? Can I just go out and like write a script and then go try to sell it to someone? Like, how does that work? Well, with your audience clout and the Pompeian audience clout, you guys would have a much higher opportunity of getting something made, to be quite honest, because 20 years ago, the way you get a movie made is you go to a star, right? You or package something around Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. Nowadays, it's proof positive what the audience is. Your brother's got 1.5 million followers. You got 400,000 followers. And dude, let's be honest. They should do a reality TV show, The Pompliano's in Miami. Like, that's a guaranteed audience, right? It's like, you guys have a built-in audience. The Kardashians, they were on whatever network <laughs> they were on forever. They had like 20 years on some network. And then exactly. I saw last year, they're like, hey, the show's over. We're done. And then last week, I see ads for them on Hulu. I'm like, you motherfuckers aren't done. You just got a bigger <laughs> check from Hulu. Like, how do I sign exactly. up for that? That's what me and my brothers need to do is find Hulu. Have you guys not been approached by anybody to do the Pompliano house? Come on. We, we quietly have been approached by random people, but it was never anything that was either serious or like worthwhile. I will say the book deals are much more common. Like people reach out with book opportunities all the time, whether it's to write about a specific topic, whether it's to write about a, an individual, whether it's to have someone ghost write for you, right? It, there's a lot of opportunities when it comes to that stuff. But I got to get in the TV game, dude. The TV game sounds like it's much better than the book game. Well, you guys are approximating already with the YouTube. Hey, I'll make a prediction right now. I, I know you guys have floated around. We're going to be bigger than CNBC. Somehow. I mean, you will be bigger than CNBC. That's just a reality. So- I mean, why even need a TV deal, man? YouTube is the future. You guys just keep building that niche, right? You're not that far from a million subscribers, but you have 400,000 now. And once you guys get to a mill, probably this time next year, all bets are off, right? I agree, man. I think just on that note, like, yeah, open networks are, are going to win over closed networks. And I won't blast the numbers, but if people go look up the numbers for some of these shows <laughs> and these networks, like they're not nearly as big as you would think they are. And not only do you have the ability to, to broadcast openly, globally, 24-7, but that content lives on forever, right? And people can always go reference it and look at it and do all these things. So we're trying, dude. We put in a lot of work and it's fun. But all right, I want to talk to you about a few things and a few specific topics. So we're going to talk about Elon and Twitter. We're going to talk about yeah. Red Bull. You wrote a fucking genius thread on Red Bull and their marketing strategy and how they use sports as kind of a an avenue to sell their, their energy drinks. And then I promised you that we will talk about the Vancouver Grizzlies because you live in Vancouver. You're wearing the hat for people who are just listening and you are still very clearly <laughs> yes, upset that the Grizzlies ditched you. But let's start with Elon Musk. This is something you've tweeted about a lot. You've written about. I'm sure you've talked about it on your podcast. What's going on? Is Elon, like just straight bottom line, is Elon going to buy Twitter or not? Okay, so I'll, I'll preface all this by saying I have been live action role playing as a corporate lawyer so hard and been called out very hard on it. So I've written two threads about like the legal ramifications of like this Twitter poison pill. And then another one was about something called the Revlon duty, which is a Delaware Supreme Court case from the mid 80s, which uh, gives certain board responsibilities. But the TLDR is I have no idea what I'm talking about. So let's just establish that. I have a lot of opinions that are very uh, informed by some uh, Wikipedia research. But uh, I think today, it is 420 we're recording. And then last night, Elon did post a cryptic tweet, his second one that referenced the word tender. So he just put an uh, underline with no word and is the night. He's referencing the song Tender is the Night. A lot of people think this is alluding to the fact that since Twitter has now, it sounds like they're going to straight up reject his $43 billion offer. That's a $54.20 a share, which he put out last Thursday. So they put a poison pill in place on Saturday. The TLDR, the poison pill is that if 
Any single owner gets a 15%. Twitter has the right to issue shares to the existing shareholders outside of the hostile acquirer, and they can issue at a massive discount. And the discount is 50%. So they added a joke. I don't know if you saw this, but the actual paperwork for the poison pill says you can buy $420 worth of Twitter shares for $210. So they're like, Twitter all right. did that? Yeah, Twitter did that. So they're like, all right, Elon, if you're going to hit us with the 420 joke, we're going to hit you back with the 420 joke. But basically, at the time, I had written a, a, a like I said, superficially researched thread on the poison pill, just explaining what it was. And I said that 10 years ago, Netflix had gone through a similar battle, which is funny because we just saw what happened when Netflix got completely clapped today, I think down 35% after their subscriber numbers fell for the first time in a decade. But 10 years ago, the last time it fell was Carl Icahn tried to buy Netflix and get it sold to Microsoft and Amazon. So Icahn comes in, buys up 9.98% of Netflix. Netflix is like, fuck you, we're putting it in Poison Pill. So Poison Pill hits and Icahn actually never ends up buying any more shares. He gets really upset about it and he does a lot of stuff that Elon Zhu now goes the PR route. But the Poison Pill worked for Netflix. The poison pill kind of forces you to negotiate with the board now. So now Elon is forced to negotiate with the board in some capacity. If he doesn't negotiate the board, the two kind of Supreme Court case precedents is he can sue them and say that the board is not doing their fiduciary duty. And his argument will be, well, 5420, whatever, it's a 18% premium to now, 50% premium before I started buying. And even though Twitter's share price was as high as $75 or $77 or six months ago, that was pure just drone pile pump and dump, right? Like the cash machine was out. Every growth stock, tech stock was uh, uh, higher. Now they've all been chopped. This is the new reality. So that's his argument. That'll likely be his argument. And the other one is called the Revlon duty. But basically what happens, and there's been reports that private equity companies, Apollo, Toma Brava, have started floating offers. But if this becomes an actual auction, the board's responsibility is no longer, hey, we need to let the management execute its plan. We need to take care of our, our users and our shareholders. They need to get the highest price, basically, for the shareholders. That's their number one responsibility if it becomes an auction. Highest price with two contingencies, the availability of financing, which with Elon, we always know is a little up in the air. The other one is the probability of deal closure. That's the status right now. I love your thoughts on it because I know you also have very strong feelings about Twitter. You guys are so good at Twitter and have opined on it. And I love your thoughts where you think is the next step. No, nah, man, I definitely have thoughts, but I think it's funny that you mentioned you're doing your research on Wikipedia and all this stuff. Cause it's like, how do you think everyone's getting this knowledge? <laughs> I tweeted out the other day and I just pulled it up. I, I said, with Elon attempting to buy Twitter, it's incredible to see so many people go from well-educated virologists to geopolitical experts and now MA specialists <laughs> all within just a few months. And Hands up. total joke, but obviously people freak out and they get mad and they get upset. But I think more to that point is like, yeah, the internet has democratized access to all this stuff, right? And you're, now you're able to go look at all these things and determine for yourself what's yeah. real, what's not real, how people should look at it and so forth. So I think it's fun. It was, it was a joke that was semi-serious and taken way too serious. But my general thought on this stuff is like, I don't know. If you're Elon Musk right. and you're the richest dude in the world, you're worth $260 billion. Like, don't you just keep raising the price until they say no? Like, how much time do you <laughs> want to spend on it, I guess, is the real answer. I know, I think it was maybe the New York Post or, or someone that said he's willing to spend 10 or $15 billion of his own money. He'll go find financing somewhere else for the rest. Maybe other people will team up with him. But I think we get in this weird avenue where at some point the board has to act in a responsible fashion for their shareholders, right? Yeah. We saw, I forget who tweeted it out, but someone tweeted out the other day, the ownership stake for the Twitter board. Yeah, Chris Back, Chris Back. Yeah, Chris Back. It was basically <laughs> like if you took 
Jack Dorsey off the board, right? I think he owns like two and a half or 2.2% of the business. And if you took him off the board, the rest of the board combined, 10 or 12 or however many there are, own like 0.1%. And Elon Musk now owns with his 9% 75 times more yeah. than them, right? So he already owns a massive piece of the business compared to everyone else that's on the board. Obviously, they get paid other compensation. They each earn around about 250K a year, I think it is. So you get in this weird spot where it's like, okay, the business was at $70 a share or whatever it was. To your point, was that sustainable or not? Who knows? But today, the business is right around the price it IPO'd at over a decade ago. Embarrassing. Yeah, embarrassing. You have this massive user base. The platform is obviously incredibly valuable. People use it every day. We build businesses on there. People use it as a means of communication. It's real-time news. Yep. So you get in this weird place where I think people are going to start criticizing the board much more heavily and say, are you really acting in the best interest of your shareholders? And to your point previously, that gets intensified if more people start bidding. And I think that's what we're going to see is that all these private equity firms are going to come in, whether it's with Elon or against him or kind of ancillary to him. Yep. My personal opinion, again, I have no freaking clue what's going to happen. But my thought process would be that we're going to see a lot more of these private equity-based firms come in and, and say, okay, is Twitter up for sale? How much is Twitter up yeah. for sale for? Can I pay $55 billion? Can I pay $60 billion? Can I pay $70 Because you're sitting on this massive opportunity where if you're able to actually build out a good system to monetize the user base right. and so forth, okay, maybe the company is worth much more than it is today. Is it worth 50 billion, 100 billion? I don't know. But I think a lot of people believe it's worth more than it's trading at today. 100% agreed. Some form of bidding will go. I mean, you saw Cuban tweet when the uh, offer came out, right? Like he had a really viral tweet. He's like, if you are at a big tech company right now, your lawyer, you're talking to your lawyers about what are the antitrust implications of a Google, an Apple, a Facebook. Well, Facebook's impossible, but maybe Google, Apple potentially could, Amazon, Salesforce. So like, could you guys put something credible together to go around antitrust concerns. And David Sachs said on the All In podcast, he thinks it might end up with a Google because they would rather deal, the DOJ would rather deal with a Google because they're already dealing with it than with Elon, right? Oh, they, they don't want to deal with yeah. Elon at all, <laughs> they I imagine. Want to deal with Elon. Yeah, exactly. But that's also what Mark Cuban said was that this could just be Elon messing with the SEC, right? The, the before 20 yeah. bid, obviously, and so forth. But I don't know if I buy that. And I'm curious your opinion because- Again, Elon's worth $260, $270 billion, richest person in the world. If he was to to sell his stake, even at the highest price that Twitter traded after he made it public, he would have made maybe four or $500 million, right? Less than a billion dollars. Irrelevant. It's irrelevant when it comes to the grand scheme of things. And even if it is fun at that point, and he could make a couple hundred million dollars, it's still a couple hundred million dollars, right? I don't, it's, you know, it's to him, it may be irrelevant, but it's it's a lot for guys like us, but. I don't think it's worth the risk reward, right? The risk of having the SEC get mad and come after you and so forth. Oh, for like a joke. Yeah, for a joke, right? I mean, he's crazy, but I don't know if that's the right move. I I agree. And I have a, a pet theory about it. I've watched a lot of Elon content over the years. Probably. Well, let's hear it. Let's, no, <laughs> well, here's let's a pet hear theory, it. Right? You, you can't say that. <laughs> well, you probably heard. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen some. Uh, you're, you're on Twitter quite a bit. And he tweets about it and talks about it a lot. But to your point. Okay, let's establish this is not about money. And he has said that. And a lot of people are skeptical about that. You know, I met on TED last week and said, I don't care about the economics at all. Which, by the way- I believe that. I believe that. I also believe that. that. And it's for everything you said. This is just not going to move the needle for him. Like, that's just the reality, right? It will be costly for him to do it because he has already a board against a lot of his Tesla shares. And he's probably not going to want to sell it down. I agree. But I think the better argument for people who say that he's doing it for some ulterior motive is ego rather than that. And I don't think that's necessarily what he's doing either. But I feel like that's a more, that's a fair argument versus for money. Because exactly. when you have that much money, you don't care about the money. 
here's the one money aspect that I will concede to. Tesla doesn't have uh, marketing advertising. Everybody knows that. They spend $0 a year in marketing advertising. I think in the entire life of Tesla, almost two decades now, they've spent $300 million. Uh, F-150 spends $300 million a quarter. Just to give you an idea of how much money other car manufacturers spend, right? Elon and Tesla do not spend money in marketing because Elon is marketing, right? That's it. He is the advertising arm for Tesla. He's the advertising arm for SpaceX and every other project ever does. It's the greatest distribution channel ever that anyone's ever created for an individual. That's the monetary value. Having said that, he knows how valuable that is, but here comes a pet theory. So he said on a number of occasions that the reason he wants to go to Mars is he wants to preserve human consciousness. And Mars is an insurance in case something happens to Earth, right? If Earth gets wiped out, everybody, all the humans die, human consciousness is extinguished from the universe. I know this sounds highfalutin to a lot of people. I believe he believes this. I find it difficult for him not to believe this and work 120 hours a week at SpaceX and Tesla to build the world he wants, right? I believe he believes this. The other part is that he understands the internet and and he believes, actually, he said it. He thinks we live in a simulation. He thinks the odds that we don't live in a simulation is one in a billion. So it's pretty funny. When you talk to people that believe they live in a simulation or hear about it, they're usually the most successful people. I know that's probably a little bit of survivorship bias or maybe the people that said it and also feel we don't talk about them, but they believe that the system is playable, right? And he's clearly playing the system extremely well if it's a simulation. But going back to the original point was when he learned about the internet, he said, this was his exact statement. He said, the human race has a nervous system now. Twitter is the closest thing we have to a global human nervous system, right? It's the fastest way to connect and communicate and, and transmit notifications, as you mentioned. It's like a notification machine. He believes those things. So between the fact that he cares about human consciousness, which I truly honestly believe that he does how else could somebody work as much as he does if he didn't and that he believes that the humans have a nervous system that is the value to him about twitter right and then and then somehow layer on top whatever he's going to do with Neuralink. i'm sure it's all going to fit together yeah i i tend to agree and that was actually my main point around why i don't think that he's doing it for fun or for money or any of the other stuff because i'm sure people have seen the interviews at this point where he talks about how hard he works in general right there was a video from the ted that came out the other day and he's like I don't own a house. I don't own any of this other stuff. I don't own a yacht. I don't take vacation. I have a plane because it enables me to work more hours, right? I think they said that they've calculated now that every minute he spends thinking about Tesla in an intellectual way, right? Like he's actually present and thinking about it is worth about $1 million in value to the company. A minute. Yeah, one minute, minute which is <laughs> insane, right? Just from a monetary perspective, insane. But it shows you how much of a premium he places on like clear thought and his time in general. And to your point, he works over 100 hours a week or whatever it is. So I don't think that he would be doing this unless it was serious to some degree. And he had, whether it's an overarching plan or just really does care that much about free speech and he thinks that's the issue, right? Plenty of people have an opinion on whether they think that's the problem or not. But if he does think that's a problem, that's why I could see him spending so much time and money. The other interesting thing would be, and I don't even know if this would be allowed, but just thinking out loud, like, it could be a marketing arm for Tesla, right? Yeah, I mean, he offers 30, 40, 50 billion dollars. That's somewhat of a drop in a bucket when it comes to Tesla's market cap. Yeah. So hey, maybe if they end up using that as an avenue for marketing. Well, just protect himself, right? Just protect himself yeah. because the SEC has come after him and Twitter is a private organization that, you know, they could be clamped down on by the Oh, so you're even talking about like if he was to get deplatformed in some capacity. Exactly. Listen, if Trump can get de if Trump can get deplatformed, anybody can deplatform, right? I'm not saying that's his motivation, but it would behoove him to care to not get the platform, right? Twitter is just too important to him. Yeah, the risk if he was to lose his account is worth- For whatever reason, yeah. right? For whatever reason. Yeah, right, rightfully or not or whatever, regardless of if people think it's it's the thing to do or not, 
if he was to lose his Twitter account, it would be worth much more from a loss perspective exactly. to him than it would be to acquire the company. Exactly. Yeah. But I, but to your original point, that's all secondary to me. I believe this other pet stuff I've said about the human nervous system and the, the, the human consciousness way more. And to your point about free speech, which I didn't even mention, I believe he believes that. I don't know the level where it, it rank orders in his decision to do this. Just remember how he started Tesla and SpaceX, right? He does everything from first principles. He literally taught himself rocketry. I interviewed an individual that he borrowed four books from. They're just physics books to start his road towards becoming a rocket expert. And he cares about first principles. And he knows that without free speech, you can never get the first principles, right? You can never have the debate and the back and forth that's necessary to find truth in the universe. He talks about it in the TED Talk too. He's like, truth is the, is the number one standard. He wants more truth because it, it allows him to bend the universe, right? To bend reality. Because if he understands physics, and physics is, you know, these are the laws of the universe. He knows what the laws are. He can help develop solutions for mankind. All right. Before we move on, it's the 20th today. How does this end? Take a guess. I want to hear your prediction. Oh, my goodness. I think this thing's going to end up in court. And it will come down to if Twitter says no to his offer and these other bids come in and somebody else wins, it's going to go to court. And the court's going to have to decide who has the highest bid because that's my my become what it ends up in. The Revlon duty says between the highest bid, the availability of financing and the probability of a deal getting done, you have to decide what's best for shareholders there, right? So that could happen. I've been told by my lawyer friends that the more likely route, and this is actually something that you can go through uh, Elon's tweets and replies. Over the weekend, and, uh, and you mentioned the Chris Back tweet, he's been replying a lot on Twitter board related tweets. He liked Jack's tweets about Twitter's board being dysfunctional. He liked the tweet showing that Robert Zolak, one of the board members, has never tweeted. He liked the tweet showing how little skin in the game that the board members have. And the reason he's doing that is they're setting up for this, what's known as the Unicol standard, which basically says you sue the board for not taking what is on the table as the best offer. And you kind of walk through why it might be the best offer, right? You're like, the $77 a couple months ago, that really wasn't reality, right? That was just total Fed $7 trillion in the economy not a real valuation, Yeah. then they could sue the board. The other things he has, like he could proxy fight and try to get rid of the board, but the board staggered, so he can only get rid of a quarter every year. It'll take him forever to get rid of the board. So I think I'll end up in court. So that's my prediction. And then I don't know where it goes from there. I really, I'll be honest, I want him to get it. I, I think he'd be a better steward of the company than what exists now. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. The one thing that I thought was probably the most interesting out of all of it somehow was the filing. Yeah. Imagine getting a text as the chairman of the board from Elon Musk at whatever time he sent it, but the day before and saying, hey, I'm going to buy your company. It's getting filed tonight. It'll be public tomorrow. Do you have a few minutes to chat? And that's literally basically all it said. I don't care what you're doing. If you're at your child's exactly. graduation, if, if your baby is being born, you're like, all right, I got to go figure out what the hell's going on. Because Yeah, you Musk tweeted be, that, right? Yeah. You I tweeted like, the letter. <laughs> yeah, the, le the letter was incredible. And it goes back to, I, I'm sure people have seen at this point too, how his emails that have leaked internally right at Tesla, where yeah. he's basically just like, hey, if I send you an email, these are the only three things that you can respond with. And I think it's fair, right? He's just very efficient in his communication, which, you know, there's plenty of other people that are similar in that manner, good business leaders and so forth. But I think it speaks to how serious he is, right? He's just like, look, guys, I'm not playing around. I don't have a lot of time for this. This is exactly what I want to do. And I can't do it in the current state. So let's find a way to make it work. Otherwise, I'm out. And I think it's interesting. I think we're going to see what happens. But my other question for you before we go to, to Red Bull is, do you have your Twitter DMs open or no? I do. Would you be a billionaire off the amount of NFT requests that you get? I, I'll tell you one that you will laugh about. It's Elon related. 
So I've had a couple of Elon replies and we've engaged yeah. in some meme dumb. I got a, a shit, total shit coin. I think it literally was called something shit coin. They said, if you can get Elon to reply to one of these tweets, we'll cut you like 50, 100K. I'm like, well, first of all, worth more than that. Yeah. Second of all, there's no effing chance in a million years. I'm tweeting this shit. But yeah, dude, I get a lot. Are you closed? Oh, no, I'm open. And and the thing I always laugh at is like, I mean, I, I, I pretty much exclusively talk about Bitcoin. Like there's there's probably some other stuff that I think has value and a lot of it's interesting to me. But I, I have Bitcoin. That's all I've ever really invested in for a long period of time. And it's all I really ever talk about. But it, it makes me laugh to that point of like when people say, yeah, crypto bros, all this shit. It's like, dude, I'm like the furthest inward on the spectrum than anyone else. Like there are people so further out. And secondly, I could be a damn billionaire off the NFT request that I get. Yeah. I bring it up because I'm literally on Twitter and I just got three notifications within the last five minutes of people that were like, hey, can you do this the NFT? Can you promote this? Can you do this? <laughs> and it's just, it's it's one, it's pretty sad to see just like how many people are, are doing this because obviously they're taking them up on that, right? I know people are charging thousands of dollars even for for tweets and YouTube videos and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's just crazy because it makes me laugh. I'm like, dude, if I just literally showed people the DMs, I think they would realize like, all right, you're, you're probably fine. Maybe we should go after some other people. No, 100% agreed. And I mean, you guys are peers, right? Your brother has, has been a peers for a very long time. So you guys are very on brand by not dabbling. Yeah, we certainly have withheld ourselves for sure. All right, so let's talk about Red Bull and F1 specifically. Everyone knows Red Bull. I don't know the exact numbers on the on the business, but it's a massive, massive business, probably the biggest energy drink company in the world. But you tweeted a thread a while ago. I've seen similar stuff maybe elsewhere to some degree, but you did it specifically around their F1 team, which I thought was super interesting. And I really enjoyed it. I think other people enjoyed it, obviously. And, and I think people listening will enjoy it. Walk us through, at least like on a high level to start, what the hell Red Bull's doing in Formula One? Absolutely. I want to give full credit first to Mario Gabriel, who I know you guys know, the Generalist Newsletter. So he was the one that came up with this. I specifically wrote him like, Mario, you know that this would be a banger thread. He's like, it's all yours. I'm like, I take done. Taken, bro. Snatch. And, and then sure. Yeah, don't, don't, you don't have to say yeah. it again. I'm, I'm like, done. Good. Don't. Well, Mario, what you don't know is I already wrote it and I'm just asking you now. And then now I just, I just literally tweeted it. Can you actually retweet it for me? So... <laughs> So F1, of course, owns, uh, I mean, Red Bull owns F1 team. They won, I don't even know the terminology. I'm a very poor F1 guy. I'm like, you know the stuff that you cover widely, Joe? Like these new fans, I'm one of those. I'm one of these new Netflix fan guys. You, you, you talk through it and I'll help where I can. Okay. So uh, last year, F1 won the world championship. Is this correct? With Verstappen as their main driver. Controversial. Yeah, drivers. So, so there, there's two. There's the drivers championship. This is good because I think a lot of American fans are new to Formula One. So okay, they'll, they'll appreciate this also. So there's two championships each year. The drivers championship is the individual championship. Okay, and then there's the constructors championship, which is the team championship. So Max Verstappen won the drivers championship as the driver with the highest points at the end of the season. Mercedes won, I believe it was their eighth constructors championship. So. Your two teammates count towards the constructors, and then each individual keeps points for the drivers. Perfect. So Verstappen, Red Bull driver, got the shine. Controversially is what I what I saw from Drive to Survive, so the Netflix show. So Red Bull has an F1 team, but then you have to ask, why do they own an F1 team? A lot of people, the instinct, which is what I thought too, was like, oh, they're just an advertiser, right? They're just a sponsor. That was my, my non-knowledge about the sport. But it turns out, as we all know, Rebel owns a team. They actually own two teams. What makes it interesting is we should just go back to when it all started. And you had mentioned and touched on some of the, the numbers, which I'm happy to share here. So Rebel, 
they got to be the biggest energy drink company in the world, right? They sell 50 billion plus a year. I'm freaking drinking one right now. That's 8 billion cans. And these are their numbers. This is from 2020. So as a, as a point of comparison. So they sold $7 billion worth of Red Bull in 2020. They, uh, Coca-Cola did $33 billion in revenue overall. That includes some snacks too, but let's just try to compare them. This is where it gets interesting. The marketing as a percentage of sales. Red Bull spends 35% of their sales on marketing. That's $2.6 billion. Coca-Cola does $3 billion, which is 9%. So we're talking 35% versus 9%, right? And this goes back to what the thread was about. Red Bull is a marketing company. They do not manufacture the drink. They own no factories. It's a partnership between a Red Bull, the marketing kind of overhead firm, and a, a, a Thai drink maker called Creighton Dang. So Creighton Dang, do they still own the drink and basically they just license it from them and then go market it? Creighton Dang is the name of the drink in Thailand. And I, I, I totally missed this. I lived in Vietnam for five years in 2008, 2013, and I used to drink their drink all the time. And I was always like, oh, this label looks familiar. I just, it never never realized that it was Red Bull. And you, you have the label in your thread. I'm looking at it now and people can go look at it later, but it essentially looks like a poor man's Red Bull. Like, it's just like, like yeah, it's, it's, it looks like a poor man's it's Red not Bull. as clear. It's not as clean cut. It looks like a Pepsi bottle to some degree or, or like cough medicine. Exactly. But they have the, the two bowls in red and they have the yellow sun behind it or whatever it is, but it's just not as sleek. It's not as good. So like, you can definitely tell there's some comparison, but I could see why you would get confused. I think you nailed it. It looks like cough medicine. <laughs> it looks like cough medicine, right? So the Thai creator of that drink, the Thai drink, the Thai version, his name is Chilio Yuvidya. Listen, Viet people, listeners, Vietnam and Thailand, we have almost no similarities. So like, if I'm butchering this language, I apologize. And Dietrich Mateschitz, which I also probably butcher because I also don't speak Austrian. He cut this deal in 1982. But this is where it's interesting. So each put up 500K, the Thai individual and the Austrian individual. They each own 49%. The other 2% goes to the son of the Thai creator. They're, I believe they are the richest family in Thailand. And they've been involved in some actually pretty unfortunate things. Like I believe a, a son or grandson was involved in a really fatal accident, but got away with it because he's one of the richest people in Thailand. So this drink, as has been demonstrated over the years, like forget about F1, right? I, I think you've tweeted about this a lot too. It's like they are marketing geniuses. The most memorable was when they did the suborbital jump. I think they created a, I got the number here, but it looks like they did $6 billion in brand exposure for a cost of $50 million. So this is when Felix Baumgarten, the Austrian skydiver, jumped from suborbit at 128,000 feet. Think about it. That's pretty crazy. They spent seven years at $50 million to do that stunt. And then they got six billion out of it. That's like making a movie, right? That's, That's what like I was gonna say. Is they spend years doing this stuff too. The guy, I'm blanking on his name right now, but there was a gentleman who flew the plane under the bridges. This was like yes. maybe late last year. And I remember reading that he had been training for like five years with Red Bull to do this. And it was, you know, a, a two-minute stunt essentially. And obviously it got broadcast everywhere else and, and was on TV and social and digital and all of those things. But to that point, they invest a ton of money, but also time. And the Formula One team is is interesting because, to your point, it's not like they just slap their name on Mercedes, right, or, or, or another team and say, hey, look, we'll be your title sponsor. Yep. They own the factory. They own the, the facilities. They own all of that stuff. 
And it's like this massive marketing expense that obviously they feel gives them a good ROI. I think your example, the airplane individual, and then the Baumgarten skydiving example are the perfect setup to the F1. So let's take those two principles. They will spend money and a long time, right? They're playing the long game here to get the kind of brand exposure that's consistent with Red Bull. And I don't remember when I first realized or heard about Red Bull, but you you know, it's that kind of, that, it's energy drink. It's like, oh, you do crazy stuff. They do all these extreme sports. But that the energy for them in F1 started very differently, right? It's how you explain it, actually. They kind of put their toe in the water. They understood the value of marketing and specific, specifically with sports. In 1988 was their first deal. In 1989, with the F1 team, it was Ferrari. So they had a Ferrari driver that was drinking his drink. His name was Jochen Rinch, German. So this is actually interesting because he competed with an Austrian license. So that was the connection. He actually died in a car crash, sadly. Oh, no, sorry. Mashik grew up uh, watching this individual who's an Austrian race car champion. That's what, that was his connection. That's why he loved F1. So Austria had a, a, a champion race car driver in 1970 who uh, sadly died. But in 1989, Red Bull cut a sponsorship deal with the Ferrari driver's name is Gerbard Berger. So apologies for mixing that up. But now they're in F1. They've dabbled, right? They're like, okay. And Mashik has a, he, he, he loves F1, clearly. He's like, I'm going to go deeper. What's the next thing I can do to ladder up into F1, right? He does by buying a majority stake in 1995 in Sauber F1. Are they still a team in the in the constructors or are they out? Nah, nah. They're nah, out? Nah, nah. Okay. So 95 gets involved. Oh, it says right there. Yeah. They basically, the team doesn't do very well. And in 2001, the, the Austrian owner of Red Bull has to leave because they had a fight over uh, Kimi Raikkonen, who I know is a very famous racer. It turns out he wasn't happy with Kimi Raikkonen being chosen for the Red Bull team. So he just sold his stake. He's like, I'm out. He's like, I'm going to go buy an F1 team where I don't own 51%. I need to own 100% and make all the decisions. So now we're fast forward to 2004. And sure enough, the opportunity comes up. Jaguar F1 Racing is put up for $1. And the reason why it was only put for $1 in any type of these deals, there's so much debt and the business is a disaster, right? He had to agree to invest $400 million over the following three years. And then everything from here, you will be the expert on it. They bring in Christian Horner in 2005. And then Sebastian Vettel, I hope I'm not butchering that, wins four titles, right? So like, could you talk through like that Vettel period and like how important it was for Red Bull? I mean, they were just great. Horner, as obviously he's the longest tenured principal in Formula One. And Sebastian Vettel was, he's incredible. He's a legend also. He he raced for Red Bull. He raced for Ferrari. He's racing for Aston Martin right now. And they won, yeah, I think it was four championships in the early 2010s. And then essentially what happened was Mercedes dominated. They've dominated the past eight years. And, and we'll see what happens this year with Ferrari being the fastest. But the engine changed, right? So there was the simplest way to put it is that there was a change in the regulations around the engines that the cars were able to use. People have their theories around why Mercedes was able to develop a better engine or not than other people. But ultimately, that's what happened. They, they hired engineers. The Total Wolf story is actually super fascinating too. And, and I plan to do more on this at some point, whether it's a thread or a newsletter or something. But I think you'll enjoy it. So I'll talk about it for a second. He, he, was, in a, he, he was a race car driver at first. He wasn't Formula One, but he raced in some lower level circuits and some some other things, whether rally car or something else. He went to school for economics afterwards, and then he was an investor. He, he invested for other people, and then he opened up his own, what essentially was a private equity or venture capital shop. Private equity, really. He invested in a few different things that were related to motorsports. He ended up opening a management company where he was managing some younger drivers in Formula One. 
as one of his investments. But then he gets a call one day from the, the Mercedes team, the people that own that team. And they were not good. They were not doing well or any of this stuff. And they said, Toto, what would you do if you were us? And he's like, well, you know, I'm happy to go check around if you want. <laughs> so they're like, okay, come over. He goes and checks out. I think it was like a week or something like that. But he basically dug into everything you could imagine. He comes back and he's like, look, guys, you're never going to improve unless you spend more money. <laughs> Essentially, he's like, you got to spend more money. If you want to be a top team, you have to spend like a top team. This game's all about money. We got to hire the best engineers. We got to hire the best drivers. We got to really invest in the research and development of the car and the engine of everything. So he had already owned a small stake in the Williams F1 team at the time. He had bought it in, in through his investing company. And they were okay. like, well, do you want to come run our team, actually? Like, if we were to do that budget, would you do it? And he was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm more of a skin in the game type guy. Like, I got, <laughs> I'm in Williams. And I forget the exact numbers. I can look them up later. But they essentially said, all right, we'll give you some skin in the game. So he bought into the Mercedes team at a pretty good valuation discount relative to what it should have been. And then they gave him the money and they said, go build the team. Unreal. And he's, yeah, he's done. I mean, you know, people give him shit all the time just because of Mercedes dominance and, and so forth, but he's done an incredible job. He obviously hired the best engineers. They built the best engine. They, they were dominant for the last decade, most of the last decade. But there's actually an interesting piece in Harvard. Harvard Business School did a case study on them which was fascinating because it talks about a few of the things about why he's a great manager and so forth. He did an interview with them and like, there's cool stories. Like when he went to Mercedes for the first time, there was like dirty newspapers everywhere. He's like, Hey, you guys, like, I'm not going to come here unless you guys get a better attitude. Like you got to clean this up. This isn't formula one. The head chief at the time, the principal was like, dude, it's all about the engineers. None of that matters. Yeah. And he's like, no, it matters. So literally at race weekends, the first race weekend, I think he went to, he was like, the bathroom's disgusting. Uh. <laughs> and they're like, dude, stop being a prima donna, whatever. And he ends up hiring a guy. He mentions the guy's name, but I forget it right now to clean the bathrooms. And the kid's job is literally to sit outside the bathroom all day, all weekend for the race. Every time somebody goes Every in, every time uh, someone goes up. in, he cleans it up. <laughs> and, and and Toto, the first time, showed him exactly how to do it. He got down on his hands and knees, scrubbed it, put the toilet paper back, everything, and was like, "Every single time this bathroom gets used, I want you to clean it that same way after every single person." And that's one example, right? The other one was Lewis Hamilton, who is obviously insane, jumping out of planes, going to fashion shows, traveling all over the world. But essentially, Toto Wolf was like, "Dude." I don't want you to do this stuff, but I understand that you think it's helpful for you to perform well. Like these are your creative outlets. You like music, you like fashion, you like going to these events. Fine. I'll create a framework for you to do this. And he gives one example in the Harvard business case study of, I think it was Singapore in 2018 where Lewis Hamilton had, I mean, he's on Instagram, right? He's got hundreds of millions of followers and he had been out basically all week traveling all across the world. He was in London. He was in the U S he was in like Brazil. He was everywhere. He was getting like, it in, getting yeah, it in. He was getting it in. He was at fashion shows. He was at weddings. He was literally at everything. You're supposed to show up, you know, like most people show up early in the week for the race that weekend. They do tests, they do all this stuff, they get ready. They adjust the time zones, obviously, and so forth. He showed up on like Wednesday night. I think it was practices is on Thursday, Friday, and they're qualifying whatever on Saturday. He had like the most incredible lap of all time on Saturday. And he he got pulled and he took off and no one caught him. And sure, some of it was the car for sure, but it was just an incredible lap from a driving perspective. And all the other principals were giving Total Wolf shit. They're like, dude, your driver's all over the world. Like he doesn't care. He obviously isn't into this, whatever. And Toto's like, dude, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He's a gamer. He's a gamer, dude. And it just speaks to like some of these guys that are running these businesses are are insane, but they're all crazy competitive. Yeah. Like Horner's the same way. Totally. I'll give you two thoughts that popped up as you're explaining the Toto story. The first one was when you're explaining how they went to him or say, like, hey, how would you fix this? And he gave a number or he gave an explanation. 
That's what basically happened, how Dick Cheney became vice president. George Bush asked Dick Cheney to go find him a vice president. And after the search, he's like, oh, you know what? I think uh, I think I should be your guy. That was So that was my first thought. I'm not making any like- Is more, that a true story? Yeah, 100%. Dick Cheney became the head of the committee to find a vice president. Because Cheney was on the Republican Party, knew uh, Bush Sr. They're all like in one big group together. Bush Jr. tapped uh, Cheney to help him find a, uh, a vice president. And then he ended up being the vice president himself. The other total thing that came up to my mind was you're explaining the the bathroom with the kid. And it's, man, it's like what John Wooden said, right? Famous, legendary UCLA coach. It's like the first thing he taught his players wasn't about basketball. It's like tie your fucking shoes. Just tie your shoes right. It's the small things that add up. Because if you can't do the small things right, if you can't keep a bathroom clean, how are you going to have a $20 million vehicle, right? A machine, the like the most pristine machine in the world for moving humans on a race course. How are you going to keep that at a hundo, right? Yeah. I feel like there's a story like that about every kind of legendary coach or leader. And like, yeah, it's funny because I'm a Giants fan and Joe Judge has been, was the coach for a few years and he was doing the same shit. But the problem is like, if you don't win, eventually players are and the fans and staff are like, yeah. hey, screw this person. You know what I mean? Like he was, they were doing like, they were running nonstop. They were tackling in, in preseason. He was taping tennis balls to defensive backs hands to basically, so they couldn't grab and hold on to people. <laughs> And like, sure, it sounds great yeah. in theory, like you're going to run this really disciplined and strict organization, but if you don't win or if things don't improve, right. questions are being asked. People start asking questions, right? And one of my favorite books, I don't know if you've read it, but it's The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh. It's not like an incredibly intellectual book, but he was the 49ers coach and incredible coach, won Super Bowls and all of that, turned the franchise around really, but he implied a lot of the same stuff. He was just like, I follow a process. We're going to follow this process and it should deliver us good results. But they got to a point where literally in the book, he was like, dude, I fucked up so bad. Like I, they were still losing. They're still, he's making the players dress a certain way, tuck in their shirts, arrive <laughs> at the plane, dressed in a certain way. Yeah. The receptionist had a script to answer the phone. Like he was doing all of these things and they were still losing, getting blown out. So one flight he talks about is when he's flying back to California from, I think it was Miami. And he's like, he, he said he cried the whole flight. He's like, I screwed up so bad. It's not working. I'm going to get fired, all this stuff. The TDLR is that they turn it around, they win. And now he's like a legend writing books and stuff. But the point is like, you never really know until you start winning. Yeah, there's definitely survivorship bias, right? Like there's probably a graveyard of coach tactics that didn't go anywhere. I didn't want to lose totally the thought because the one thing I totally forgot to mention about the F1 Red Bull story was manufacturing history, which is kind of the theme of the entire thread. So we talked about why didn't they just slap the Red Bull logo on a car? And the reason was they wanted to take it one step further, as we've talked about. They, they long game this stuff. As you cover so well in the Huddle Up newsletter, you, you understand sports and mythology, right? It's like There's a very different thing than putting your logo on a car and then only the entire race team and this is the key. This is what Mario wrote, which is such a good writer. He said, fandom is heritable through generations. So you talk about a business and customer acquisition, right? Listen, Red Bull spending $3 billion a year on customer acquisition or marketing. So they're investing. They've invested over $2 billion into Red Bull. But all it is, is at the end of the day, if you're being cynical about it, it's customer acquisition. And what is one of the most organic things you can do? It's a father telling his son, you are now a fan of Red Bull. And not only are you a fan of Red Bull, you grow up going to these races. You grow up watching it every Sunday. That affinity is so much stronger than anything else you could do. And I'm not saying that makes you go down to 7-Eleven buying Red Bull. But you're thinking about Red Bull a lot. And it's going to, man, the human brain. To hack the human brain and Red Bull is what you care about, you will be drinking a lot of Red Bull in your life. 
So it, it's brilliant. And then the other part is if you win, it makes the brand look better. But obviously, if you lose, that's the contra. The last thing I'll add is Red Bull has taken this manufacturing history ethos. As you all know, they have an entire stable of sports teams. It's not like they, oh, we do this F1 and we don't kind of believe this. They own six soccer teams, obviously a one for the MLS, two F1 teams, Scudera, Alpha Tori's the other one. Lots of random sports, NASCAR, skateboarding, sailing, hockey, and esports, among other. But there's one takeaway, it's the manufacturing history part, which I think was so interesting. I don't know what you thought about that. I don't know if you found that the interesting part of the thread, but that to me is what's like, this is like fucking brilliant. The thing that most people forget, and I think I commented this when you first did it, was just how powerful the exposure is from a marketing perspective. And I know these numbers because Red Bull actually mentioned it in their earnings call. Okay. I think it was a year or two years ago. So the average race, this they didn't mention this part, but the average race gets 90 million plus viewers, right? Maybe 100 million plus viewers. It's essentially a, a bad Super Bowl every weekend, right? So, so maybe the Super Bowl gets 100 or 105 or 110, but it's around those numbers every weekend for 20 to 25 times a year, depending on the season, right? So, so massive amounts of people watch this globally. And then the other thing is the good teams, they get all of the advertising time, right? Because not strictly advertising, but they're the ones that are on the screen. Yeah. And the number that was in Mercedes earnings call, I believe they said that it was either 2019 or 2020, maybe even 21. They got 25% of all TV time during the season. Their car was featured wow. because they're up there at the front, right? They're always running, et cetera. And people care about them because they're a top team. Red Bull, to your point, has been doing this for years and decades now of being a top team, and they get 25% of 100 million people watching every race. So it's incredible from a brand standpoint, and it's obviously working. I mean, the, the company is, is massive, and, and they're winning in Formula One, so that's certainly worth something, too, and they, they've built a big business. I'm sure the team is worth over a billion dollars now relative to what Ferrari and, and Mercedes get, so... It's good. We only got a few minutes left. So let's talk about your Grizzlies. Yeah. What is your beef with the Grizzlies? <laughs> uh, well, the beef is that they're no longer in Vancouver. And now they have a generational superstar in John Moran. And they have the third richest owner in the NBA, Robert Perra, who owns Ubiquity Networks, which is a... Robert Perra is a beast. Absolute Robert, monster, I, I right? recommend people look into Robert Perra. He's a beast. At, behind, behind Dan Gilbert and Steve Ballmer is the third richest NBA owner. So I'm looking at this as a fan. The Grizzlies were in Vancouver for only six seasons, 1995 to 2001. And they sucked. Sucked. They had the worst winning percentage of a franchise. I have the numbers here pulled up for you. It went 101 and 359. So I think the winning percentage is like 26 or something. Worst winning percentage of any, any NBA franchise ever. But the sad thing, there's two sad parts that I, I will say. I love what Toronto Raptors did for Canada. Obviously, they won a chip in 2019. And a lot of Vancouver Grizzlies fans chose Toronto. They didn't have either choice. But there's two huge what-ifs in Vancouver's history. So the first one is the expansion rule was this. So Toronto and Vancouver came into the NBA in 1995. This was at the peak of diluting of the NBA. 89 had Orlando and Miami come in. Jordan was back for his first full season when the, the Grizzlies returned. That's actually one big knock against Jordan's 72-10 and 10 record with the Bulls. That was uh, two expansion teams. But the rule was this. They couldn't get the top, they couldn't get a top five pick in 95. And they couldn't get a top three pick for the following two seasons. Vancouver had the number one odds for the Tim Duncan draft. And if they had won that draft, they would have gone Tim Duncan. And they'd still be in Vancouver. There's just no question about it. So that's one big what if. The second big what if is also around drafting and talent. But Toronto, who do they get in 98? They get Vince Carter. And then they, get, they had the highest attendance during the Vinsanity days between 2000 and 2003, they had the highest attendance in the entire league. 
And Vinsanity, they had T-Mac for a season, but they brought that energy where you saw the divergence, right? And like Vancouver's not a big city, 600,000 population. Toronto is the third biggest metropolis in North America. So they already had a longer opportunity and chance to exist as a franchise. But then you tie in the fact that drafting was awful. You had Brian Reeves, Shufra Abdul-Rahim, Mike Dibby. Listen, they're not bad, but they just didn't build a franchise around it. The record speaks for itself. And then after six seasons, the plug got pulled and the team was moved to Memphis. And uh, the shenanigans around the actual deal were not great either. Robert Heisley bought it from John McCall. Actually, he bought it from somebody else that bought it from John McCall. But the TLDR is the machinations of moving the team. A little bit uh, upsetting, because especially where they are now. But it is what it is. That was the most well-researched argument that I've ever heard. <laughs> when you said you wanted to talk about the Grizzlies, I thought you were just going to say, I'm pissed they left. We need to get the next expansion team. But you came ready with facts. I don't know if this is something that you argue with friends all the time or if you just looked it up. <laughs> But that was impressive. I'll give you that. But sadly, I think that your best chance, I just Googled it. It's about a three-hour drive to Seattle. And <laughs> you're, yeah. you're, you're most likely going to have to drive to Seattle if and when the NBA does another expansion franchise. Well, Joe, I'll tell you the last time I did a real NBA game, I didn't drive to Seattle. I went even further. Where do you think I went? Drove. I drove. Golden State. What's near Seattle? Oh, you went to Portland. Oh, okay. <laughs> Portland, brother. I drove seven hours to watch yeah, that's LeBron. Yeah, e- that's even further. Yeah, I drove seven oh, to hours watch LeBron. to watch LeBron. Yeah, that's even that's even further. Is that stadium nice? Honestly, not that nice. Portland's a great city, but I mean, the stadium's older, much older. They have, and they have history, right? To your point, can we get Seattle back a team? Can I get a taste of that? Can it just be a two and a half hour drive instead of six? That, that actually wouldn't be bad. I think Seattle probably has the greatest chance to get one. They had a team previously. They, they have the infrastructure now built. They just got the NHL expansion franchise. They obviously have the NFL team. You have owners there from from Microsoft and others that could take ownership and, and really do a good job. Oh, because that's exactly. all the stuff you need, right? And then you need to not overlap people from a TV market standpoint. That's usually the difficult part. And like Memphis made sense when they moved there initially, but there's really not that many open markets now where you could move a team that doesn't overlap another city, right? Because you don't want to steal fans from one area. That's a great so point. So sure, maybe in the Midwest somewhere, but like you want to be near a big city. So it's like a give and take where... I think if they were to add a couple teams, like Seattle is probably at the top of their list, I would imagine. I would uh, leave on this argument, the Bill Simmons argument. He says that if a team won a championship, they should never be allowed to move. And the Seattle Supersonics won in 77. So that's a pretty good argument, man. I'm a fan of that argument. If you want to chip, your team has history. I kind of like that. I actually haven't heard him say that. That's a pretty good argument. I think that the caveat is that when money comes into play that people do anything. So uh, (laughs) I I agree because it kind of sucks for the fans. Like if you're a kid and you watch the team win a title and then you're like, oh, I really love basketball. And then they move two years later, it kind of crushes all of your dreams. But Red Bull would not be happy about the manufacturing of that history, right? They're like, you're going to take all that history and flush it down the toilet? Red Bull's probably trying to figure out how they can buy an NBA team. (laughs) They're like, uh, we'll sponsor the team, throw the logo on the jersey, give the players Red Bull and warm-ups and we're good to go. I imagine that they would enjoy that. But all right, dude, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. This was great. I had a great time. Where can I send people to find the newsletter? Let's start with the newsletter. The newsletter is great. I know you've been doing it for a little while now. It's like the perfect mix of good information with threads similar to your Twitter. How do people go find the newsletter if they want to sign up? That's at trunktfan.com slash subscribe. And then the other one, easiest one is at trunktfan Twitter if you want to see some real stupidity. <laughs> yeah, t- Twitter is like a different animal. I, I, I usually, when people ask me that on a podcast, I just say, go to Twitter. You can find other stuff from there. And that's like whatever for me. For you, I think like that's a must. You got to go to Twitter. You got to follow Trung. Check him out. He's got great memes and, and I promise you will enjoy it. 
But Trung, thank you. We'll do it again. If yes. Vancouver ever gets an NBA team, I promise to have you back on and we can talk <laughs> through it. You can bring Deal. up the facts, you can bring up the stats and you can brag. But otherwise, I'm strapped, bro. I got the numbers ready. <laughs> I love it, man. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.